Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How's everyone doing? We've been so incredibly lucky in this part of the world and have just moved back down to level two lockdown this week. Things are getting back to normal slowly. This means haircuts, trips to the cafe and mall are all back on. So far, we've only had five patients admitted in total to ICUs around the country and only 21 deaths in total. We certainly saw the benefits of our go hard, go early approach to lockdown. Now just to recover... Uh, economically and mentally. I hope you're all taking good care. This is episode number 16, recorded just this last week, and today I talk with Christina Whitehead. This interview was recorded by video call, which does present a few challenges to sound quality, sorry. Christina is the research clinical nurse consultant in the Nepean Hospital ICU in New South Wales, Australia. As well as her nursing degree, Christina has a master's in bioethics and last year completed a graduate certificate in clinical leadership. She is currently a PhD candidate with the University of Sydney, exploring the integration of genomics into mainstream nursing clinical practice. In this episode, we talk about undertaking research, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, the value of and learnings from ICU follow-up clinics, a planned ICU research coordinator pandemic survey that she's currently undertaking, ICU biobanks and the importance of genetics and genomics, in particular the ethics of significant or unexpected findings from these tests, and nurses' engagement with precision medicine. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Christina Whitehead. Right, so thanks, Christina, for joining me today for this podcast interview. Um, you're sat in Sydney, <laughs> west of Sydney, and I'm sat here in Auckland. Uh, it's a pretty cold, miserable day here today, actually. I don't know what it's like with you across that side of the ditch. <laughs> About the same, yeah. Great time. <laughs> so we're making the most of Zoom today because obviously in these challenging times of COVID-19, we can't actually meet up for an interview. So Hopefully everything is going to go swimmingly with the internet today. So Christina works in um, Nepean Hospital, which is west of Sydney, and she works there as a research nurse clinical consultant. And Christina, how long have you worked in the ICU environment for? As long as I've been a nurse, I've worked in the ICU environment. So that's coming up to about 12 years now. So did you go there straight as a new grad? I did, yes, yeah. I did. And at the end of that first year of being, um, you know, a new grad in that first year of nursing, I, I had a, a pathway I could go towards emergency or I could go towards uh, the intensive care setting. Both, both being critical care, they had similarities, but what won me over with uh, the ICU was how uh, sort of black and white and, and, and rigid protocols were and uh, the... Um, 
the way that uh, there's one way to do everything. And I liked that order and I liked that control. Uh, the chaos of ED, I suppose, was what <laughs> I, I walked, I know I turned my back on. So. so you like to have all your lines tidy and not, you know, sort of strangling them. <laughs> I think most ICU nurses do, absolutely, yeah. So what had attracted you to nursing in the first place? Uh, there are a few nurses in my family, um, going back a few generations. I've recently been doing a bit of ancestry exploration, actually, and keep discovering more and more. So maybe it was in my genes. Um, and, and yeah, certainly coming straight out of school, um, it felt it felt like a secure place to, to go to work, a secure profession to work towards at the time as well, which was um, probably the right move, I think. Mm, yeah, especially these days, there's exactly. not going to be a la lack of employment. That's right. And so you headed straight into the ICU and worked there for a number of years before moving into the research role? I went into the research role fairly quickly. I got, I got an excellent opportunity to take, um, to take on a, a mat leave position for someone um, in, in a research coordinator role at my previous hospital, in my, the previous intensive care I worked in. And, and I got offered that role because I'd, I'd gone back to uni as well quite quickly after my undergraduate nursing degree. I started um, what was a grad cert in clinical ethics, which turned into a master's of bioethics uh, by the end of it. And that, you know, that, that started really early. And, and because I had that sort of interest, um, the research role and the ethics of um, consent and those sorts of concepts really gelled nicely. It all sort of tied in together really nicely. And so I found myself being on the floor at the bedside and in the research role. And I just loved both and really didn't want to let the research role go. And so I've, I've kept that going. And, and even when I, I went into the research role full time, I still tried to keep some room in my life for some clinical work as well, which I've done in, you know, the private setting and on the side and that sort of thing, just to try and keep a foot in both. Because it's, it's nice to be in um, a clinical trial uh, role and coordinating um, all involved with that and, and, you know, navigating the challenges of that and creating nice evidence for uh, to direct care of the patients that you, you're very much advocating for. Um, but it's also nice to actually be, uh, have that hands-on mm -hmm. experience and having a foot sort of, you know, on both grounds is nice. Yeah, I think you sort of miss it, don't you, if you move just into the RC role and don't have that direct patient contact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's been my experience. I think too it helps you understand what your colleagues are going through at the bedside when you rock in there with a, a research trial and are asking them to help you. Um, you have that understanding of what's going on in the bed space as well, which is hugely important. Yeah, and it helps with the planning um, and, and the understanding the feasibility of a study that's being proposed, knowing instantly what you're difficulties are going to be and what what you can reasonably expect from staff in the way of screening and possibly recruitment mm -hmm. and management of drug and you know collection of extra data points and all those things that we need to think about when someone else comes to us and says I'd like to run this study is it feasible we've got that lovely blend of understand blended understanding mm -hmm. what the nurse is going to have to do for us or, or others on the floor um, and what we need to to occur as per the protocol yeah. mm -hmm. 
do you think um, if nurses know that you have an ICU background too and are still clinically capable and competent, that that sort of helps with buy-in and, um, you know, mutual respect? Absolutely. I, I do feel that's the case. But also I think um, respecting anyone's background who finds themselves in a research role in a clinical space is also something that should be valued. I think everyone, who, even if you come from a science background mm -hmm. um, or, you know, even a different sort of health specialty, everyone brings something different and to value that and to try and perhaps make, you know, assemble a team because um, it's always about the team that, you know, has... Um, a background, various backgrounds is probably the best best way to manage the research in any setting. Yeah. Mm. Do you have that in your own team? Do you have people from other specialties or backgrounds? We yeah, we've got we've got um, you know nurses in the, all. Uh, sorry, all, all nurses in my team, but from various um, clinical specialties, with various various you know years of experience. Yeah, so it's a little mm. bit mixed there. Mm. Nice. And what do you enjoy most about your research nurse role? Um, I think I enjoy ultimately coming at it from a really um, unique space that other people don't get to experience. It's a lovely thing to be creating the evidence that influences care. It really is a unique, special position to be in. And that's become, I've felt that even more so in these strange COVID times where um, you might you you'll be watching a show uh, you know on the uh, on the news about a sort of trial drug or a drug that's used for another indication that's all of a sudden being given to COVID patients to see if it improves their care and the next day you've got um, you know paperwork on your desk to try and get that that um, the trial supporting that drug up in your unit and within a week you've done that and you're giving it to your patients that's genuinely been the experience that I've had during this um, you know COVID period where um, the COVID-based research has really taken priority over other types and everything's sort of been cleared or paused and it's just all about COVID, um, which it needs to be. Um, and it has been really enjoyable to be part of a system, I suppose, that is as efficient as it's ever going to get, um, or it certainly proved itself to, to respond quite nicely from what I've seen with regards to setting up trials really quickly. And I think that's what I enjoy, I've enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your ICU. Um, so our intensive care is it's broken up into two into two pods. Um, all take the same general ICU patients. Um, it's a um, we've we've just expanded our care to add another about another third bed capacity, an extra thirteen beds um, potentially if we need it during the pandemic. Um, we've got an excellent group of intensivists that are extremely supportive and it's a very collegial group. Um, and research has a really strong culture here as well, which has been lovely to be part of. And we've got a very um, open sort of pragmatic approach to trials and to also investigator-led um, work where we're really, there is a lot of space made for um, anyone from our multidisciplinary team who would like to design their own research and then set it up and get it off the ground and run it there's definitely space for that um it's facilitated and it's very nice to be part of that sort of um you know set of ideals yeah fabulous to you know be able to support the multidisciplinary side of it not just the medical side of it um yeah yeah We're very lucky very lucky here
Is there a lot of nursing-led research that goes on? There is. We've got we've got a clinic, an ICU follow-up clinic at the moment. It's been running for nearly two years where we invite patients back uh, who have been uh, in, in the bed long enough and who are sick enough. We get them to come back at around the three-month um, mark and we interview them. We uh, assess them for uh, post-traumatic stress and trauma as a result of their ICU admission, which are extremely common occurrences in, a, in an ICU population. Uh, we, give, we assess them for quality of life and for frailty. Uh, and then we ask qualitative questions and we ask what, what essentially has been the impact of being in ICU now on reflection and also what do they recall about their experience. We ask them to tell us about what they've experienced being, the, being in the ICU. And that's, that's a fabulous, um, you know, a lot of data that has a sort of dual purpose of being clinically beneficial and also, um, and also get, get some lovely data about how we can inform care moving forward. And nurses have attached themselves to projects related to clinics. So we've got nurses who are particularly interested in understanding, let's, as an example, the transition to the ward um, you know, event, which is often quite, um, nurses, uh, sorry, patients uh, tell us that that's a, quite a difficult moment of transition for them to leave the ICU onto the ward, particularly the long-termers. Um, and so we've got nurses who have heard that message and have run with it and designed ways that we can try and improve that, that moment of care. And that's just one example of probably 10 or so mm -hmm. projects that we've got. We've had workshops run where we feed back the clinic information to our uh, nurses, specifically nurses, and then let them pick up whatever they're hearing and, and move forward with it, patient diary projects and things like that are also, yeah, so that's, it's been nice to, um, yeah, be able to cultivate that nursing research culture. And it's also been lovely to be able to spend time in my role, have that luxury of having space in between the trials work to get that sort of stuff supported here. Yeah, and so important for, um, you know, like I guess nurses in the bed space to be able to get that feedback around the patient experience and then look at how that can be used sort of towards quality improvement and um, improving the patient journey. Yeah, it plays into that um, implementation science, um, you know, idea of, of, of practice change where you try and not just um, dictate from a sort of top-down um, you know, in a top-down way, you know, this is the change that needs to occur um, and this is how it'll happen. You try and build build in practice change from sort of, you know, the middle upwards and your nurse leaders are your nurses at the bedside. They're not your someone with a manager after their name or, a, you know, the consultant after their name. They're, they're the nurses at the bedside that are leading that change and driving that change. And the first step in that sort of, in, in successful practice change is, um, uh, nurses recognizing it themselves not being told it needs to happen but actually seeing it and then deciding that it needs to happen and if you can show nurses what needs to be done to improve the experience of the patient um, then they can you know jump on that themselves and that makes I think that makes that strengthens that change. Mm. Can you give us an example of a um, project that might have come out of this that's you know led to a change in practice? Um, yeah, so what we've one fabulous project that was done by our nurse educator looked at the idea of what our what our patients kept telling us was the the significance of that moment when you 
your, the nurse first meets the patient in, in, at the beginning of their shift. And what a difference that moment can make in a person's day, whether the nurse has looked them in the eye or introduced themselves, or even what that nurse appears to be going through in that moment, whether she seems tired or agitated by something or genuinely open to uh, caring for that patient fully you know, in that moment. And so because we kept hearing how important those, that, that particular uh, interaction is for a patient for the rest of their day, we uh, uh, our nurse educator Danica developed a, um, a, a sort of a pause tool where you could stop, take stock of how you were feeling, identify how you were feeling. Yes, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling frustrated, I'm feeling this and that or distracted or, or whatever it might be. And then, and then say, and how would I like to feel by the end of the day? And what do I want for my patient? And just that very act of thinking about it, um, and, and it's no more complicated than that. And then going to the bedside and introducing yourself to the patient, just that mindfulness of the importance of your affect in that moment, um, you know, makes all the difference. And I think the, the idea about practice change in nursing, um, using ideals like, you know, interwoven with practice development. Um, Brendan McCormack is a nurse in the UK and he, he's developed these ideas about how it, what it takes to change practice for nursing specifically as opposed to other disciplines. With practice development, it's not about generating evidence that then needs to be proven to have worked necessarily. It's just that, and that mindfulness is a good example. The fact that a nurse has come up with it, has taken it to the bedside, has shown her colleagues that this is something that we can do to help our patients in the moment mm. that's a project enough yeah. that's fantastic what a great example yeah and so lovely to see it coming from you know your environment through your educator back to your staff back to the patients you know yeah so we've talked about COVID, <laughs> current topic of conversation everywhere how has COVID 19 impacted your icu so far we i'm so um proud of everyone involved in my icu everyone came together so incredibly quickly and the the communication was wonderful we've had such great um we've had a, a covid uh team of three nurses and a covid team of three doctors and together the six of them have sort of been the go-to people channeling communication up and then down and out to the to the unit we've had um um, cancelled all meetings so that no one is uh, so the social distancing can be facilitated and we zoom in even if we're sitting in our office if we do have to have a meeting and we've um, until very recently had one weekly meeting that's it um, there was social distancing in a very large room or you could zoom in um, where where updates are um, communicated um, we've also had excellent communication through our district, um, having sort of, there's a daily broadcast that goes out with updates about numbers in our, in our community um, mm -hmm. and numbers in the hospital or being cared for in hospital in the home, which gives you a good idea of how things are moving in what direction they're moving. I, very rapidly, that flurry of activity at the beginning led to um, the position we're in now, which is a very comfortable position where we have those extra beds, we have the ability to ventilate, we have stocks of PPE, um, and everyone, um, uh, those who are not at the bedside all the time have been trained up, and there's been a lot of space made for extra um, work, uh, you know, workshops to upskill, to, um, you know, ventilation and that sort of, those sorts of skills. 
pools nurses have come in and, and with any ventilator experience, they've come in and also had an opportunity to, to skill up in that way. So we are ready. And that's, that's the sense we've got. We're ready and we're ready now to um, for the slow burn that it seems COVID will be. Uh, we'll see. There's talk, you know, people are theorising about second waves and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, it's been, it's been a nice experience because I felt like everyone has come together to achieve, you know, that, that really common goal of getting prepared. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've been so lucky down this end of the world, haven't we, that, you know, we've not experienced what they've experienced in the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, we have to be eternally grateful. Have you had any COVID patients in the ICU? We have, yes. Mm-hmm. We, have. we um, There was a, a ship cruise ship called the Ruby Princess that docked in Sydney, which you've probably <laughs> heard about, that led to cases and more cases and more cases. And so, um, you know, we ended up um, having, you know, helping out with that with those sorts of patients um and we also had an outbreak at a nursing home quite nearby to us as well in our district and so our hospital our hospital staff did a lot of outreach work there um our infectious diseases team i went into that nursing home our our um um our uh she's ig uh, CNC or, or aged care CNC also went out into that nursing home and tried to do a lot of prevention of hospitalization in that mm. group which was excellent um yeah, so it's it. We have had experience looking after patients, and every we've done a lot of sim um, with getting patients moved into the unit, and then how we um, don and off and those sorts of processes and changing of you know tubes and circuits and all of the you know processes that involve aerosolization that we need to be really careful around. A lot of that has been simmed in in between the times when we've had patient our COVID patients in the beds mm-hmm. so we can refine those processes and get them um, better and better yeah and it's been a very multi uh, um, um, we've had we've incorporated the intensive care and the anesthetist and mm-hmm. infectious a uh, multi-departmental approach to yeah. getting this um, happening as well because so many different um, services need to work together to all be you know, going by the same protocol, uh, which has mm. been able to watch as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a nice opportunity, isn't it, to get the various silos together and to start um, conversations around standardising procedures and um, policies and things across the board, yeah. So from an ICU perspective, how did it go having COVID patients? Um, you know, was there a degree of worry with the first patient that sort of didn't necessarily carry on to the second or subsequent patients? You know, have people got more used to the idea? I think, as you say, with the benefit of having a nice lead in time to prepare and to observe what was happening overseas, when it came to protocolized components, they were quite well workshopped by the time our first patient arrived, which was nice. Um, some little things that you can't avoid, you know, were, were workshopped and improved every time. But um, I think most of the nurses would say that things were very well thought out and that no one felt at risk at any point um, or frustrated by too many components. That small, small things have had to be adjusted to. Uh, one of our nurses have, have made little headbands that go around your ears so that you don't get, you know, the hours and hours that you're wearing your PPE for. You don't get pressure, mm-hmm. pressure areas yourself on your ears. Little lovely details like that. And um, it's been it's been lovely to see as well the support from the community. We've got you know lovely soap 
soapy hand pumps sitting in our bathrooms at work to um that have been donated to us and there's always something in the tea room for people to you know have their spirits lifted by um that have been gifted to us which is yeah a really nice feeling as well yeah that's lovely to see isn't it the level of support from the community too yeah yeah so lots of things to take um forwards into the post-covid days whenever they sort of yeah. settle back to normal yeah um so one of the things and i guess this is a good opportunity to talk about this too one of the things you're planning on doing is talking to icu research coordinators about their experience with the pandemic um, in the form of a survey so do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah i think what i saw at the beginning of the the flurry of activity that i mentioned with pandemic response was a a very clear um you know sentiment that we will all get back to the bedside and clinical duties will be prioritized by all and anything else is superfluous and at the time that felt okay that felt right i think everyone was on board with that idea but as as we are you know we've got ourselves together and we are prepared for whatever comes um reflecting on that a little bit i thought well if logic flows that evidence needs to be generated in order to know how to nurse pandemic patients and what really needs to be sustained alongside the clinical effort is research effort and research activity in the ICU particularly. Um, and so I then started to, to think, well, could we possibly in time for the next pandemic, say, have a strategy that allowed, you know, this um, clinical duties to be prioritized yes because that's essential but also sustained research activity and so what i what i would like to do and what i am going to do is is, is ask nurses what what is working well ask research nurses what has worked well for you in your in your ability to sustain research activity throughout this pandemic period and i'd like to not, you know drill down and figure out what is what is it about those units that made that sustainability successful um, and what what is it about the units where they weren't able to sustain research activity? Um, and what do we need to do differently? And and it will it will come down to resourcing and funding of those RC roles, I'm sure, and and how that sort of uh, those elements impact um, a research coordinator's role and and how secure they are in that role when times really do get stretched for staff and then they're needed at the bedside. But I think there's some work to do and there'll probably be some lovely evidence there to discover about what experiences have been had by research coordinators um, in ICU settings in this pandemic that we can try and create some guidelines and some policies for and perhaps a business case for why we ought to really be able to, um, if we can switch on that, that rapid clinical prioritization of staff across the board, can we perhaps a switch also to um, you know present a sustained research activity um, you know strategy as well because that is what's needed um, mm. in order to care for these patients that are that need to receive treatment in a research context so that we can um, yeah give give that best practice mm. uh, great idea so how are you planning on doing this 
I'll, I'm inviting uh, the Intensive Care Research Coordinators Interest Group members to um, volunteer to be uh, interviewees. And I'd like to get most, uh, uh, most uh, ANZIC CTG sites represented um, in, in, the, in the group. We'll see how I go. Um, I'd like to interview uh, the RCs now in the next few weeks to get a feeling of what's happening now. And then I'd really like to come back to the same group um, when, inverted commas, when the pandemic's, you know, finished, whatever that means, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps even just later on in the year and come back and say, you know, these were your anticipated concerns. These were your worries. Um, these were your, you know, anticipated challenges. What in reality took place and what, you know, on reflection, what could you have done differently uh, or, you know, or what worked well? Um, that's what I'm keen to find. Mm, it'll be a fascinating um, study to see the results of. And, um, you know, I think there has been so much time and effort go into and worry, go into sort of planning how we would all cope and how we would still do research during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we still don't really know, do we? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So you were saying before, have you stopped... Um, doing some research during this time in your unit or have you been able to carry on with most of your current projects? We didn't suspend any any research at all. We didn't even modify the way we screened. We just kept going uh, with a plan to stop, to press pause on the recruitment of any non-COVID related research. That was our plan. If, if, if there wasn't going to be enough research staff to sustain safe levels of monitoring of study participants or reasonable um, you know, timeliness of, of follow-ups being conducted and particularly consent because the burden of consent became um, huge. From a, uh, from a research coordinator point of view, it did, it required, you know, probably doubled, tripled, quadrupled in the time taken to get consent because things were being done over the phone. We couldn't handle paper. Um, we needed to get, um, you know, we were, we were fielding some studies getting rapid approval for a verbal consent, which was not in their original protocol. So there were all these challenges that came up that were unique to each study that we needed to um, be, all, be across really quickly. Um, but also the burden of consent for the patients grew really quickly because of extra studies coming on that required consent of some form, um, whether they were, um, we do a, a, few, a lot of genomics work here in, in the ICU, so we have a lot of biomarker studies. So patients coming in septic or with some sort of infection would need blood taken. Each one of those studies would require a consent form, along with the COVID-related research, which we have um, one study that requires consent for that, although it, it requires a few different kinds of consent, and it's a bit tricky. That's the Remap Cup study, which is a fantastic study to run at the bedside. Um, and so we needed to manage the the notion that a you know a patient could potentially be being asked to fill out you know four, five, six mm -hmm. written consent forms, and we weren't able to get written consent on any of them. So that presented wonderful challenges and definitely had a time burden too so um it's been a learning curve but you know actually you know fundamentally it's been enjoyable to be part of that ride i've actually found it's not you know it's not been um stressful i wouldn't say just just, a learning just challenging curve. just challenging <laughs> but we love a good challenge don't we that's the thing you know anything that we can try and problem solve and a 
random kind of way we love. Yeah, yeah, why not? Bring it on. <laughs> How have you found the experience with, um, I guess, relatives initially and then with patients um, with these COVID sorts of studies in particular? That's right. So relatives of a, of a COVID um, patient can't visit the, the ICU. They can't go anywhere because they're isolating because they've come in con- into contact with a positive person. So phone calls um, are important. We've even not even removing yourself from the research, um, you know, way of looking at it from a clinical point of view, there were adjustments made. There was a, a, a you know, process put in place where a particular person would make one phone call of a morning to the family and update at that point. And then you didn't get families feeling like they had been um, forgotten and then they knew what to expect because there was this arrangement. And so for us, our challenge was trying to tap into either that phone call and mm-hmm. having perhaps the, um, you know, the, the staff specialist or the fellow or, or the nurse at the bedside, whoever's making that call to incorporate a consent um, process into that phone call, or at least give us some information about who the most appropriate person to talk to would be, if not, you know, technically the next of kin, then who? Um, and that was fine. And then, and then expecting people to um, cope with having to print Fine and scan is was also almost too much of an of an ask for some. But yeah, it's um, yeah, it's been it, that that they're some of the adjustments that we've made. But we've we've worked well and we've written up a guideline for how for how we have managed it, and that should satisfy the ethics committees. That will will have a task now, probably in the wake of of all of this, to sit down. And I sit on an HREC as well, so I can imagine what's coming. There's going to be a lot of protocol deviation notification that goes on yeah. to HRECs, I imagine, and a lot of sort of really pragmatic review of, of those sorts of uh, ideas, and and hopefully a fairly consistent, you would hope, reaction to these, you know variations and deviations from protocols that have happened across the board in, in most interventional studies, I mm. would imagine, most of which require written consent um, prospectively or um, consent to continue. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. And again, it provides um, a really good opportunity, doesn't it, going forwards, um, when, once we're back in peacetime again, to look at issues around consent and how we document that and alternative strategies because you know you can't always get hold of relatives um, even in the best of times. That's right trying to conduct consent processes that are in accordance with the laws of the states that they're being operated within um, you know that the interpretation of those laws need to um, be, be consistently applied across eight uh, human research ethics committees within states and, and, and also ideally across states and across countries um, because it's, it's genuine, generally the same protocol being enacted across all these different barriers and, and somehow, yeah, somehow we need a, an approach that is, um, treats all patients um, uh, and processes uh, the same and is consistent. Um, I think the I, I feel like electronic consent will be something that gets picked up on quite soon. I don't see why that hasn't perhaps come around sooner, and I suspect that will be one of the major changes that takes place. Um, yeah, because the notion of informed consent is so vital to what we do. It's probably the most crucial, um, you know, thing to get right in the in, mm. trials, in trials work. 
So interesting that you sit on an HREC or um, ethics committee, for those who don't know what we're talking about. Um, how has that helped you in your role? And is it a good thing as a research to have done? It's one of, it's a volunteer role and it's one of my favourite days of the month. I absolutely love it. I've sat on two different um, ethics committees uh, now and they've both worked slightly differently and that's been enjoyable to see as well. Um, I just, I just think it's an amazing, um, you know, privilege to be exposed to research um, that's you know, just in its fledgling phase, that just that protocol, that lovely protocol phase, and to to read through these protocols and and see how they can be operationalized and and through the experience of being a research coordinator for twelve years, being able to see what won't work really quite quickly, I think it's been a really good. Uh, it, you know, it makes that that role when I review studies for the committee, um, you know, really really easy. And, and has, has helped me in that in that way a lot. I really, I love the the creative ways that people find to um, you know to, to to find evidence and and the mixed methods that they apply. And there's no study is, is alike, like another. And that's enjoyable too to see um, to always be learning something through reading every every new protocol that comes across my desk. It's a, it's a lovely lovely thing. Um, and and the. The model we have for ethical review in Australia, I really like. It, you know, it's 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 the committee model, and I love that idea of sitting around a room um, with um, other uh, people who come from different backgrounds and who can bring something else to the words that they're reading on the page. Uh, I love that idea. I think it's a really functional model, um, and I I think that Australia got certain New Zealand who, who run the, uh, the same model um, have certainly got that right in the way of um, ensuring that research participants are protected um, yeah. when they're enrolled into studies. It's really reassuring model, isn't it, for um, not just ourselves as clinicians and researchers, but for study participants That's and their families. Yeah. From a function point of view it's not an obstructive model either it can feel frustrating I think for researchers particularly submitting through these ethics and governance processes for the first time um, they can feel like they're up against there's pushback you know and gen forms and things but really the reason for that sort of fastidious critiquing of every element of what they're putting forth is done to protect the participant and it is done quite quickly given the the amount of information that needs to, the amount of checks that need to occur and the amount of information that needs to be considered. Um, yeah, and I think it, it's really quite functional. Mm, mm, nice thing to be able to say. <laughs> yeah, I hope my, everyone might, might not agree, but well, yeah, that's my <laughs> feel. <laughs> so one of the other big parts of your life that you've started in the last year or so is your uh, PhD studies. <laughs> so let's talk about those because I have to say I know nothing about genomics um, and this is your area of interest so it really is I um, how and why <laughs> good questions a few years ago um, the director at the time uh, professor Anthony McLean who's a big um, big proponent of genomic and genetic research the idea that you know the genome can in, can tell you um, about the patient's disease state and can be used to inform care. Um, that notion is precision medicine. Um, and he, he uh, wanted a biobank set up. And so I, it took me about a year 
that I got through all the checks required to get a biobank in existence, which is basically the idea is that you take a tissue sample, in our case, we chose blood samples from um, patients um, in a um, particular cohort. So for ours, it was intensive care admissions in our, in our unit, just a single site. Um, and we would bank that blood along with um, clinical data. And, and that would sit there as a, an incredible resource for uh, researchers who wanted to come in and access um, tissue and clinical data to try and answer research questions in say particular disease cohorts, like sepsis, um, but any, anything could be requested. And, and that, that idea is incredible and it hasn't been done. There is no intensive care patient cohort um, biobank that exists. Um, so we've got it to ethics level. And at the moment we're at the stage where we are workshopping our um, you can imagine, uh, you know, as a research coordinator, your brain just switches on the, the steps in that would be required to be um, to sort all that out because, of course, you need consent prior to taking the blood and, and all those sorts of things. One of the other really tricky things about a biobank is this idea that if you're going to use those samples for genetic or genomic testing, then you are potentially coming up against something which is called, um, uh, you know, unexpected findings. Mm. You know? And so you need to communicate those findings in some way back to the patient if they're going to be significant for the patient's disease or perhaps for their family, for future for family planning or even siblings. Um, and so whether or not that onus of reporting those significant findings comes uh, falls with the biobank or with the researcher that accessed the samples, that's a really interesting, uh, you know, ethical situation and needs a lot of thought and different biobanks manage that in very different ways. And so it was that element of genetics and genomics that then got me exploring, well, what is a significant finding and what other kinds of findings are there and what is a genetic variation and what is a genotype to phenotype relationship? And I've just sort of built on that. And what I discovered was that in Australia, we don't know how nurses feel engaged with precision medicine and genetic and genomic based care. There isn't evidence to say that we um, are competent in it or um, confident with it or even perceive it to be relevant to our practice. So my, my, my idea, uh, my, my PhD work will be to try and answer those sorts of research questions in an Australian context. Some work has been done globally, uh, but I think to understand how nurses um, use genomics in their practice and what it can do for our patients and how nurses feel about that relationship of knowledge that they could have with this new type of healthcare is really important to understand. The precision medicine generally is it's the application of technology and, and testing and associated knowledge that can be used to, to diagnose, to prognosticate, to select targeted therapies or initiate uh, preventative surveillance based on test results that are specific to only that patient because of what we're looking at, which is their genes and their genome. Mm. And it's only been in the past five years, really, where we've had a surge of activity around the importance of integrating that kind of knowledge into the healthcare system. And the reason for that surge is that genetic and genomic tests are becoming cheaper. There's a lot more clinical um, utility, um, you know, diagnostic yield happening through genomic tests like whole genome sequencing and things like that. There's um, increased quality in bioinformatics and curation that's happening um, um, and a general recognition that if we are able to offer patients more in the way of precision medicine, 
then we need a whole of service approach in order to do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of funding um, and a lot of um, you know, focus has been thrown onto getting um, precision medicine happening in a really functional way in our healthcare system. What's really unfortunate is that in all that funding and in all that effort, nurses are not considered stakeholders in you know, the delivery of precision medicine, um, which is a problem because we are, because if healthcare decisions are being made at the bedside based on a patient's um, genetic and genomic test result, we are part of the care that then occurs as a result of that test. Mm. If the direction of care has been changed because of a genetic test result, then we're delivering that care, then it is certainly our business to understand that basis for the care. So, so how come we've not turned up to the party? Have we missed out through a nursing, the nursing side or just sort of not being considered, do you think? In, in Australia, the, the application of precision medicine is still a very outsourced function of the healthcare system. If a doctor, um, anyone is standing at the foot of the, of the bed deciding, I think I need a genetic or a genomic test to move this, to make a care decision here, they will refer to a clinical genetics team and that would be the clinical geneticist or a genetic counsellor. And then what test to do, which lab to send it to, the turnaround time of that particular test, how accurate is it, how do I interpret the result? All those components are done by what's known as a genetics healthcare professional, as opposed to a non-genetics healthcare professional like a nurse or a doctor. And so whilst that's the system, um, and you know, this current effort is trying to change that so that there is more, um, more of that responsibility is being absorbed into a, into a, um, a non-genetic um, healthcare professional's role. But whether or not we, we stick with that referral model or it does become a little bit more mainstream, the volume of testing that is going to grow and grow and grow that will mean more and more care is being influenced by the results of these tests. That's not going to stop. doesn't matter what model you have in the way I just described, the patients are going to be experiencing precision medicine more and more frequently. And nurses will therefore have to deal with that. So how do, how do nurses learn about this? How do we learn more so that we can be more involved? The there are no undergraduate or postgraduate competencies to nurses in Australia. I don't know about New Zealand. I suspect it's the same. They don't exist in Australia. Um, you can, you know, part of your curriculum, which is tied into your pharmacology, um, will have a pharmacogenomics section to it. But um, you know, that's really bundling with pharmacokinetics, and then it gets a little bit confusing, and, and most mm -hmm. nurses probably just park that a little bit. Um, I think. At the moment, there are state-based education resources, and that is, you know, you've hit the nail on the head, it's understanding where to go to learn about what you need in order to nurse your patient on that day is what it's all about. It'll be about a quick access to accurate information that um, is going to help inform um, how you look after your patient. For ex to give a tangible example, if that's okay, um, if you um, 
the consenting of a patient to a genetic and genomic test is an incredibly com complicated thing because of what I was saying before about what you might, what the results might throw up you aren't expecting and having to deal with that. And it will be nurses who are left there at the bedside talking to the family or the patient who have been the recipient of a result of some kind. And nurses are going to need to know how to deal with that situation. And they are going to need to tap into resources somewhere um, and do it quite quickly and, and, and trust those, those resources. Uh, so they need to be established, that's one thing. But what can happen um, off the back of a test result you might get um, a positive test result and treatment will be offered. And so the nurse needs to have an understanding of what that treatment is going to be and an understanding of what was behind that treatment decision. Uh, that's a fundamental concept of nursing that we don't blindly deliver care. We understand the basis for it. Findings of unknown significance. That's what I was talking about before. How you communicate that to the family is particularly important. It's not saying you have a genetic variant that is going to cause you disease. It's saying we've picked up a genetic variant and we don't know what it does. Being able to communicate that sensitively is really important. Um, nurses, I'm, I'm not saying nurses ought to be expected to do that and fulfill that function, but if a genetic counsellor is, the nurse needs to be backing up what the genetic counsellor has said if, if they're not there, or at least, as you say, needs to know where to go to get that information. Some results of, of genetic and genomic tests are going to have implications for siblings or future children. And also you have incidental findings where you are going to, if you've, if you've gone down the path of choosing, say, a genomic test, whole genome sequencing, say, you're going to find uh, genetic variants that you weren't even looking for in the first place that weren't even related to the symptoms that the, you know, the doctor was trying to get a, a diagnosis around. Um, whereas if you'd chosen a genetic panel, um, you would be running a particular uh, assay on a searching for a particular set of genes and you don't get incidental findings when you're doing genetic tests like that. So the choice of test also needs to, I feel, be understood by the nurse so that they understand what the potential is for, for when that result, test result comes back. Um, yeah, and even a negative result, the psychosocial implications and the psychological implications for that patient on not getting a diagnosis for perhaps their child in the pediatric setting, um, you know, where they're stuck in this, what's known as the diagnostic odyssey, uh, where you have a child with a rare disease that's undiagnosed and you can't go down the pathway of support networks or treatments because you don't have a diagnosis. And, that's really what has got me so excited about this topic of getting nurses um, really all across uh, genomics um, is, is the application of, of amazing technology like next-gen sequencing, like whole genome sequencing and whole exome sequencing, which can diagnose in the pediatric setting, um, which, which can give incredible um, you know, incredible, the improving, improvement in outcomes for, for children and the impact that will have on families is significant and it's interesting that we've had this uh, conversation today Rachel because just in the last fortnight alone there have been huge developments in the in the genomics pediatric space um, in Australia 33 million dollars has just been offered to flagship programs to um, look at how genomics gets integrated specifically into the pediatric setting and that's because of this clinical utility and diagnostic yield that can be achieved through the whole genome sequencing. And the other really exciting thing that has literally just happened in the last fortnight also is that our, our government um, um, you know, group that 
um, it, it's called Medi the Medicare Benefits Sch uh, Schedule that determines what elements of uh, healthcare service cost, cost, you know, mm. huge amounts or cost nothing. Um, a myriad of tests, 20 new tests that are genetic and genomic tests have just been added to that schedule, which will add to, um, you know, a huge, it would just, it would be phenomenal for the, um, for the idea of equitable access to all families across the board, yeah. be able to now get these diagnoses when they need them. So that's really exciting. Oh, it's very cool news. Nice to be able to announce that. <laughs> well, yeah. So is there, um, you know, sort of issues in terms of equity? of access to the testing and the tests are very expensive they've only just recently been you know it'll still cost three thousand dollars to get a whole genome sequence done which out of at the out-of-pocket cost for the family for that one whole genome sequence which is in, you know incredibly cheap compared to how how much it would have been five years ago and also incredibly cheap compared to how much it probably was um it, or still is in other countries um, so it, it's all relative, but yeah, there is absolutely an equity issue with this. Absolutely. Yeah, so hopefully some way of addressing that might be, you know, a little bit closer. There's a field for research too, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on. So how did you choose to head down the paediatric route as opposed to, you know, maybe the adult route? It, it was... It was really just seeing the application of precision medicine at the bedside and seeing the utility of it in the paediatric space. I think that is where the action is at the moment. I think that is where the biggest difference can be made. I mean, oncology and hematology nurses will be all over this and they will say, we've been using genetics um, for, for a long time now, um, which they do to, to pair up, um, you know, tumor typing, with um, chemotherapy and that idea that you give targeted therapy uh, to patients that matches up with um, with their condition is not new. Um, but that app and that application of it is fantastic. But other applications, such as the, the sequencing that can occur through next gen sequencing, is um, yeah, the impact it will have on families. I think is most significant. I think if we're going to focus on any area, and clearly the government agrees based on this decision, these recent decisions. Uh, then I think this is the, the space to start in. But I think every nursing specialty has, has an application for genetics and genomics. And I really challenge nurses from any specialty to just stop and look for it because you'll see it. You'll see it in your patient's medical history. You'll see it in the medications they're on. You'll see it in their, in their uh, we call it power chart, the, the, where the blood results appear. They're, it will be hiding there. They're, the idea that your patient reacts to a drug in a certain way that's genetics in play you know two identical patients in the intensive care both come in with the same admitting diagnoses very similar backgrounds medications weights heights let's say they're virtually identical one of them goes into um one, you know one of them responds to a drug a certain way um, and the other one um to to, to the next that's a, a, you know, a physiological response, yes. That's pharmacokinetics, yes. And nurses understand that fully. You know, we're all across that. But what is actually happening there is that the patient has a gene that says that they are either a sluggish absorber of that or a rapid absorber of that drug or a sluggish eliminator of the drug, a sluggish um, metabolizer of the drug. Um, that's, that's what you're actually seeing. And I, I hope that some nurses hearing this, that that is fresh information. Because it's yeah. exciting to view your patient within a new light. That, you know, the, the reaction to drugs is a huge example. And, you know, 
really the clinical application of that is, is still to be seen. At the moment, there are websites where you can punch in any drug name you could think of from noradrenaline to salbutamol. Um, you can put in a drug name and, and you, will, you will see on what loci your, that genetic variant exists. And, and if, if you were in a research setting, you could take or you access to a lab, you could take your own blood and you could get a nice profile and see, you know, for instance, that, you know, that um, patient with breathlessness in the emergency department, a test could be done to say this patient is never going to respond to salbutamol. Mm -hmm. Do not waste your time spending four hours with NEBs to the point where they deteriorate and intubate. Try other things because it won't work. Genetics and genomics can tell us that information. It's just not quite in the clinical space yet but it's coming and that's why nurses need to be all across this yeah so how are you going to undertake your research to find out what nurses know currently i'm going to tap into the pediatric intensive care space and i'm going to try and i'm going to survey nurses in that setting to understand um, what they know and what they perceive to be relevant and then i'm going to find out in a qualitative way how um, how they experience the delivery of genetic and genomic health care because i think we're we're really at that bedrock stage now where we need that level of evidence just to understand what literally what we are doing and from that we can build and then understand what nurses need of each other of tertiary institutions of government systems that are providing um, assistance in, in the way of resources and information to us in the way that we need it and it's going to be specific to every specialty um, you know I don't think there'll be a one-size-fits-all um, approach like might apply nicely to a more medical way of integrating genomics into mainstream healthcare uh, because referral pathways are referral pathways um, and, th and that can happen quite consistently but whereas I think nursing because our use our patient cohorts will be different our applications of genomics at the bedside will be different and so I think that bedrock level of knowledge probably needs to occur across all settings um, that we can then start building up on. What is your gut feeling in terms of your findings? I think I will discover what researchers in other uh, countries who have looked into this setting will discover, which is that nurses have low, you know, low competency, low in genomics, low competency, low um, confidence, but a, but a keen desire to know more. I think that I think it's all about coming back to implementation science, trying to find a nurse's um, frame of reference to understand how, how understanding this type of new knowledge and testing technology will benefit the patient and make their practice more safe and more effective. I think finding that frame of reference, that's what I hope will come out of the research. And in, in fact, I'm confident it will because that's, you know, all we have to do is ask and no one's going to ask us unless nurses I mean, ask ourselves. Ask do it ourselves. Yeah. 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 And so the implications in terms of this, obviously for patients, are really um, huge. What about implications of genomics for nurses themselves in terms of future practice development or career pathways where, you know, if you looked into your crystal ball, 
Yeah, I think we need to expand the notion of what clinical practice is, the idea that clinical practice occurs just at the bedside. I think clinical practice occurs if you're a career researcher and it occurs if you um, are, um, you know, an academic developing um, curriculums. I think if we view nursing clinical practice as, as any commitment to nursing, then, then every nurse can um, engage no matter what pathway you've chosen in this in this idea of um, yeah practice clinical practice involving genetics and genomics and optimizing that. And could we see more? I mean, I guess community based often, but um, maybe hospital based as well. Nurse geneticist type positions or other countries offered that. So, other, like America, for example, has a genetics nurse. That's a role they've got. At the moment, what we have are um, genetic counsellors, which do that role very well. I don't think necessarily we need clinical nurse specialists in genetics. I don't think necessarily that's the way to go, um, but I'm not against that idea. I think it's far too early to be looking at that kind of model. I think a lot more work needs to be done before we reach that point. We need to understand what the problems are first and then we can try and solve them and maybe they'll be solved by having you know, clinical nurse specialists and clinical nurse consultants that are experts in genetics and genomics or maybe we might find that we need to support genetic counsellors in their role um, who are, you know, who in isolation work with that kind of information because mm. it's a very challenging uh, space to keep up to date in. Constant developments occur in constant new assays and, and, and tests and genetic variants that lead to expression of disease are being discovered all the time and um, they're being, you know, discovered in different labs across different countries and that approach to getting everything, and that's bioinformatics and curation, getting all those things to pull together nicely. We need systems that, that are happening now in Australia that are trying to get them um, working to occur first, really, before we can look at how nurses can fit into this space. Interesting. I mean, it's just massive, massive opportunity, isn't there? Yeah. So this is such a specialised area. Um, who have you got in your team um, in terms of supervisors or clinical advisors to help you with this work? I've got incredible, an incredible team of supervisors. I've got um, Associate Professor Stuart Lane, who's an intensivist here. So he understands the clinical setting um, and, and he's also an expert in qualitative research. So the methodology is, I've got his support on that as well. Um, and we work really well together and I'm so pleased that he took me on as a PhD uh, student. Very, very lucky. I've also got Professor Jane McGuire, who's um, an academic lead at the University uh, uh, of Technology in Sydney. And she is a um, um, you know, avid supporter of genetic and genomic integration of practice into nursing clinical practice. I would say in Australia, she's probably the top. She doesn't get more um, you know, heart, heartfelt investment in this topic than, than Jane has. And she's tapped into um, all the international groups. There's a couple G2N. A and ISONG, which are both uh, international groups for nurses interested in genomics. Um, she's, you know, all across them. So I'm very lucky to have that content support as well. Fantastic. And how did you come up with those two as your supervisory team? Um, it was the qualitative. It was the qualitative inquiry that 
linked me with Stuart. I also work with him. He's a colleague here at Nepean. Um, and Jane Maguire ran a course on integrating genomics um, into nurses' clinical practice through uh, the College of Nursing here in New South Wales. And um, uh, yeah, we just connected that way, which is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So a year or so into it, how's it going? Good. I spent last year uh, networking, not wasting time and flitting about conferencing whilst we could all still fly into state and things yeah. like that, although that's what it might have looked like. But no, I, I really enjoyed just, I suppose that what drove me to, to do so much networking and try and meet as many people as I could and get across everyone else's research was really a fear that I would perhaps be doing work someone else has already done, you know, yeah. or or being, you know, or there might be, you know, hundreds of nurses just like me out there looking at exactly the same thing. And then I, you know, I wouldn't be coming up with anything original. So that sort of, you know, anxiety about that's probably spurred mm. me to just cast it really, you know, my feel is far and wide and try and get across it. And now as I sit here a year in, I feel like I understand the scene in Australia. I feel like I know who is doing what. It was interesting. I went back across uh, the application to, to be a PhD candidate that I submitted to Sydney University, um, you know, the year before last. Um, and I went back and I looked at the reference list. What I actually noticed that of those 20 or so papers, I had either met or spoken to, or at least knew of, you know, to, to the point where I could say where they were working, mm. every single one of the first authors on all those papers. And that was an accident, but gosh, it was a lovely feeling to, to realize that I had done what I set out to do. Yeah get across the whole topic before I started to reinvent the wheel yeah and so important to know that isn't it you know reassuring for yourself yeah and in terms of um the rest of your life because <laughs> there is an outside of you know being a research coordinator and a PhD student how do you manage family time friends you know what do they think of all this extra work um, what you can't see because I've taken it off for this because we can you know we're video and we can see each other right now is um, a wrist brace I've actually given myself some form of repetitive strain injury on my right hand which is the I type one-handed which is odd and I do it really well and really fast but just one-handed there's nothing wrong with my left hand it's just I don't know why that came to be but that's what it is and so I think that's probably a great sign that I've, I'm perhaps doing I won't say too much. I don't Maybe want a little bit much. But that's the feedback I get from people in my life that I say yes to far too frequently. But I don't see it that way, Rachel. I just Yeah, yeah. I do what, yeah, you know, makes me happy. <laughs> How do you find time for yourself, though? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I think everyone struggles with that. We're lucky enough to, we're back onto bushland, which is nice. So we've got about a kilometre of bushland out our back gate and down to the river and we've especially during these times of isolation where we can't go out the parks aren't open we can't take the kids anywhere we can't even have people over we've got to you know make our own fun um, keep the kids entertained we've turned that back space into an absolute you know boys own adventure and we've got we go for bushwalks out that back fence we've got archery kits set up I'm quite good at um, perhaps that's how I hurt my hand maybe that's the hand yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too many arrows possibly I didn't think of that um, you know we've got a, a, a huge 
trampolines so just being outside is nice so i think that's how we've got a lovely big fire pit where we do lots of nice cooking with charcoal and you know my husband gets really into that sort of scene so um i think what i do to look after myself is just to get outdoors and just spend time with, with the boys and yeah run around <laughs> yeah See, I just find it ironic that somebody who lives in Australia is talking about outdoor bush and fire pits. <laughs> yeah, true. yeah, we might not broadcast yeah. that too widely. <laughs> yeah, there are kangaroos hopping around as well. So, yeah, all, all the things. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so uh, that's one of the challenges, though, isn't it? You know, particularly when you're doing PhD study or any kind of study is just finding that time for yourself and and not letting it overwhelm you too much. Yeah. I think one, uh, Dr. Helen Wright, who is a nurse who just submitted her thesis in the field of genomics last year, um, she looked at nurses across the board um, and how they perceive genomics to be relevant. That was the first time anyone's asked Australian nurses specifically, what do you know and how do you feel about genomics? It was really important work. Um, I met her um, late last year for the first time and. And she said to me, you know, having recently finished a PhD herself, you know, you're not trying to be the expert in your topic. You're trying to be an expert student. Trying. And that's okay. Just trying to be an expert student, you know. And, and what she meant, you know, is, is there's virtue just in the doing. You yeah. know, you're not going to change the world with your PhD thesis. The changing of the world comes after that. At the moment, you're just trying to be a student. And that that philosophy has been so helpful to me because it does two things. It takes the pressure right off topic wise and content wise, and it keeps the momentum because if, it, if the virtues in the doing, then just keep doing it and finish it, just keep plodding along, which is for me, that's worked really well. So that, that's what I hold on to when I start to get a little bit overwhelmed. Yeah. Great, great words of advice. You know, it's certainly, I think getting people to understand that it's about the journey, not necessarily the destination, whether it's master's level or PhD study. Um, you know, it's it's the apprenticeship, it's the learning along the way, and hopefully really enjoying it because otherwise there's not much point either. That's right. And I'm really happy now. I think I've got a great balance of work and family and study and interest and new people I'm meeting. I think everything's great. What on earth am I going to do once I finish it? I don't you know. Let's just keep what we've got now. Just keep everything as it is because it's working. Oh, my God. You're terrible. We'll have, I'm sure we'll think of something else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe that you've even sort of started with the RC pandemic survey at the moment, you know, in terms of everything else. But just yeah. Snuck that in. Just snuck that yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All good. <laughs> can't say no. <laughs> uh, oh, well, look, I mean, I think you're doing amazingly. And um, to have fitted in this hour as well to have a chat is fabulous so thank you so much and you know really looking forward to hearing the results of both the rc survey uh but also your genomics work too it's just going to be really interesting and well done for giving a voice to nurses um especially you know we're interviewing the day after international nurses day florence's birthday so but really important times i think to be highlighting the contribution and experiences of nurses so um, keep up the wonderful work. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for today. I've been looking forward to this, this chat for a long time. I'm really glad we made it happen. I know. We've been trying to do this for a couple of months. So, yeah. Thank you so much. That's absolutely fantastic, Christina. Thank you, Rachel. 
I hope you enjoyed that. What a busy life she leads, right? Some great insights there in terms of maintaining balance and how you're not trying to be an expert in your topic, but an expert student. I love that. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, take good care, and I hope this proves to be critical to your success.